Hello there and welcome to our Union Matters podcast about work and weather. I'm Dee Dee Sly and I'll be your host today. I'm joined by uh, Lynette Johnson, who's an employee relations officer here at NSGEU. Also joining us on the phone is Colin Sutton, president of Local 79 St. Mary's University. And with all the bad weather, we thought it might help the members to talk about your rights and responsibilities as an employee when bad weather hits. Uh, Lynette, can you tell me a bit about about you and where you worked before you became an employee relations officer or ERO here at NSGEU? Um, Sure. Before I became an employee of NSGEU, I was an NSGEU member and I worked in the chemistry department at the VG and then later the VG and Halifax Infirmary, um, provided uh, chemistry services, uh, lab work to patients in the emergency department, the ICUs, the ORs, and anybody on the regular unit who was not doing necessarily very well. So my department ran 24 hours a day, seven days a week, didn't matter the weather, didn't matter if it was a holiday, didn't matter the hour. Did any situation arise where uh, there was a weather issue and um, or weather event that interfered with the normal operations in your experience? Absolutely. There was uh, a variety of weather events over my 18 years working there uh, that really created a lot of havoc within the department. One of the most severe or extreme examples would have been what we call the white wand storm. Um, I lived within walking distance for the hospital, so I was always able to get to work. Uh, My coworkers knew, so very often they would, if I wasn't scheduled, I would get a call because they couldn't get in, and I always could. My walk might not be nice, but it was always manageable. So white wand happened, I walked to work, horrid walk completely horrid walk but other people couldn't get out and other people couldn't get in so I ended up spending two and a half days in the hospital and resting and eating in the hospital because of that situation the roads were impassable public transit was non-existent you know people were being told to stay off the roads because the snow clearance was hindered if traffic was happening and it, it was a pretty severe circumstance. And how did people then, do you remember how they, they knew um, how to stay home or how would they have been notified to come in or stay home or what? White Wan would have been a little bit of a different experience just because of the severity of the storm. People would have gotten up in the morning and not been able to open their door, right? So uh, a little bit of an unusual circumstance. Other instances um, we've had in the past, we had a couple of years ago, I think it was around Valentine's Day. We had a big storm a couple of years ago, overnight, very blizzardy conditions, a lot of blowing snow. And the hospital, having learned some things, made the decision to close not vital services for those days. So outpatient blood collection, some outpatient clinics. There would be messages placed on the hospital website. There were radio ads, I recall, most departments would have a phone tree for getting a hold of staff in what they would um, consider more emergency circumstances. So a department is closed or there is some terrible other event happening and you need more staff to come in on a very short notice. So we always had those kinds of plans in place, department by department. So people would know, but by and large, people were expected to get to work. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, the university sector and uh, and St. Mary's in particular and the history of storm closure policy? 
Sure. Uh, the university sector is a bit of a different beast when it comes to employers, uh, because not only are they responsible for the safety of their staff, but they're also responsible, they bear a responsibility for the safety of the students as well. So that works into the employer's decision uh, on whether to open, stay closed, delay opening, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, at St. Mary's in particular, um, there, the catalyst for uh, change at St. Mary's uh, was White One, uh, which is kind of an outlier in terms of winter storms. Uh, but it was also uh, an, an event that happened particular to St. Mary's. Um, at the time before White One, the strategy for storm closures was simply make a decision early and then communicate that uh, decision to the employees and the students as best you can by calling uh, the radio stations and conveying the information that we're closed uh, and you know television stations for their breakfast morning programs, um, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it was very informal. There was no real solid policy around it. Uh, but unfortunately, we had a situation at St. Mary's where we had one member uh, who was very conscientious about his work and reporting to work. It was kind of a point of pride to, of his that he never missed a day. Uh, very good worker, very dedicated. Um, because White Juan was so severe, uh, he took the bus into work. And because White Juan was so severe, the buses were taken off the road. So he was now looking at walking to work. So if you remember White Juan, uh, walking was nearly impossible. And he walked a fair distance to work. Uh, his bus ride probably would have taken him close to an hour, uh, about 45 minutes or so. So you can imagine what the walk was like. Um, he walked to campus because he had to make the decision early to come in, earlier than normal, because of the conditions and because the buses were off the road. But the word had not been communicated yet that, this, that the university was closed. So unfortunately, he took that as you know, an indication that the university was open. And it ended in a very tragic result. That was the spur for St. Mary's in particular to uh, develop a formal storm closure policy. The university formed a committee, uh, a presidential committee, I believe it was, uh, that actually created the very first uh, storm closure policy for St. Mary's University. It included uh, how decisions were made, who was involved in the decisions, uh, who made the decisions, uh, how those decisions were advised, how the message was communicated. Uh, the communication plan became far more broad and is continuing to be tweaked today. If a member in your um, in your local came to you and said, where's our storm, storm, co- uh, storm policy located, what would you tell them? Well, with us in particular, uh, we have a particular a specific portion of our website that is dedicated to all of the university's policies. And that came about by the need to communicate policies to our university community, but also for uh, FOIPOP legislation and other things, like other influences uh, like that. We just decided to collect all of our policies in one place and just put them on the website for anybody to find. Um, so we'll, we will direct that employee to that portion of the website uh, where the policy can be downloaded and read on your own. Uh, also, with the storm closure policy in particular, at the beginning of the winter storm season, if you'll say, uh, the policy is circulated by email to all of the staff. And we remind staff of the procedures to be followed that, you know, if this happens, then this, you know, we, we kind of lay things out for them in simple language because the policy, of course, is written policy speak. So not everybody speaks that. So we just kind of lay everything out in plain language of this is kind of the, the flow, the workflow of how 
it happens when we when we have a storm closure. Lynette, as an ERO, you represent um, health healthcare, correct? Right now, healthcare workers, and that's been your experience as well. That's where you come from, which is really cool. So the employers, um, there's two main acute care employers in Nova Scotia now: the Provincial Health Authority, Nova Scotia Health Authority, and the IWK. Both those organizations have pretty extensive um, storm leave hazardous conditions policies that outline where people can find the information, if there's going to be closures or anything like that. So with those being acute care facilities, they never entirely close. So the expectation of the employer is that people will get to work. Now, everybody has to make that judgment when they're making, looking at the circumstances and the weather and the road conditions, can I get there safely? If you can't, then you shouldn't. But if you can, the expectation is you will. And if you can't this time, the expectation of the employer and the language in our collective agreement supports it is that you would make contingency plans because you've learned something from the previous storm. So that if that happens again, your efforts to come into work would be more successful. So when I look at the language in the uh, collective agreement for the provincial health authority for the healthcare bargaining unit, it says that reasonable lateness beyond the start of the regular shift um, is paid storm leave paid by the employer, not subject. You don't have to make up the time in those circumstances or use vacation or anything like that. But the lateness has to be justified by the employee being able to establish that they made every reasonable effort to come to work and were unable. So that really, that does support the employer's policy and position is that you learn something from this event so that you can make every reasonable effort the next time and have a different result. How do our members feel about these, do you think, in healthcare, the storm closure language? Overall, I think people are very happy that we have language in the collective agreement that protects employees when they can't come to work um, for a variety of reasons, let alone for um, storms, hazardous road conditions, and those things. There's pay protected. It's not considered to be AWOL. There's no discipline issued. Sometimes there will be managers who are a little newer that try to disregard that aspect of the language from time to time. Um, and when that happens, we, we always want employees to contact us because we can intervene and make sure that um, the language is applied correctly and people are not punished, so to speak, because of their circumstances. But the employee does have some responsibility in there to make efforts to get to work. It, it, it's not just a given. Um, there's some different things that happen when the employer closes workplaces uh, that came out of the white wand storm um, all across the province. There was a lot of workplaces closed and the employers, there was a variety of them at the time. Um, some people were paid, some people weren't. It was kind of all over the place. And so the NSGEU on behalf of its members filed policy grievances about the application of the storm leave provisions we ended up taking that all the way to arbitration, and it was Mr. Outhouse um, that had said that if the employer closed the employee's place of work and did not reassign them, 
it was a regular paid day and that cost was borne by the employer. That didn't come out of an employee's vacation or, you know, you didn't have to make up the time or anything like that. And so that still stands. And we've had to use that in recent years and go back to that decision with the employer where the, they have closed workplaces. Um, if the employee calls in prior to that decision to the workplace being closed made, is made, then the employee is going to be subject to the provisions of the storm leave language. So, uh, sorry. So if the employer closes your place of work and doesn't reassign you, it's their responsibility to pay you regardless. If you as the employee call in saying, I'm not going to be able to come in because of the storm before the employer makes the decision to close the workplace, then that is still your responsibility under the collective agreement. That's the, was the decision of Mr. Outhouse. So if people have questions around their rights, they should talk to their workplace steward if they have one. Um, if they don't, they should call the NSGEU. The, the people who answer and screen the calls here are very knowledgeable. They can provide advice. And then, of course, the EROs are always available to help um, navigate those issues with the employer. So this it seems like really mature language that exists in healthcare. So are there some locals that wouldn't have storm policy or wouldn't be as clear? Uh, certainly, I think that there are locals that we have that are newer, some organizations that are smaller, that would not have such extensive storm leave language in a collective agreement or even necessarily a, a very complex policy such as the one that Colin talks about. In those circumstances, I still think, and my recommendation to anybody would be, you have to evaluate that situation and make the decision that is right for you. If you feel that it is unsafe for you to get to work, that's what you need to communicate to your employer. But we do have um, a lot of a lot of members who really they drive a lot. They're on the road a lot. You think about our home support workers, and they drive all over the province in all kinds of weather, because people who are isolated in their homes for health reasons require that assistance and those people I, I take my hat off they're out there in some terrible weather and they have storm leave to some extent in their collective agreements but it's all over the place and some are better than others um, long-term care facilities sometimes have some don't our civil service collective agreements have a fair storm leave um, language in their in their circumstances so things are a little bit all over the place but anytime we go into a round of bargaining, we're talking about storm leave with the bargaining committee and the employer. We're always looking at what's the best language we already have and seeing how close we can get to that and move it all forward to have better, more protective language for people. Colin, do you have anything you want to say about this? Uh, well, one thing that uh, is probably worth mentioning is that uh, you know we get some questions every once in a while about why the uh, labor code uh, doesn't really say anything about this. Um, and I think the reason why is because these kinds of considerations are still, even though some of the practices are starting to become mature, the language and the practices are still being refined and they're still being matured. But there are only very few similarities from one workplace to the next. There are a lot of different variances. As Lynette said, you know, some, some places uh, the employees go to a workplace. In other workplaces, the employees travel uh, all over the place. Like their workplace involves travel, requires travel. 
um, so like home support workers and so on, you really can't uh, craft uh, any meaningful uh, piece of language that would encompass all of those different scenarios and all of those different workplaces. So until we get a little better at this and maybe a little more experienced uh, with the storm closures and the application and the problems involved, uh, it would be difficult to write a piece of legislation to encompass this. But I think a good place to start would be with the outhouse decision and take the basic idea of it where the if the employer makes the decision to close the workplace and doesn't reassign you or doesn't give you something else to do, then the employer covers the time off. I think that would be a good place to start on building some legislation. I would agree because certainly in, for individuals in non-unionized environments, if if they can't come into work, they make that decision. They call the employer. They don't. They don't. They don't come in. But then they don't get paid, and there's no protection. It's it's a very difficult circumstance, especially when you think about. Um, people in the service sectors, non-unionized environments, not necessarily the highest paid occupations in a lot of circumstances. And going without pay when you're not highly paid is a very difficult thing. And if you're, if you're a member of ours and you want to find out what your storm policy, what your employer's storm, storm policy is, would you look in both places, like in your collective agreement and in a uh, would you ask the, your employer about their policy? Would you? So the employer's policies are never, ever part of the collective agreement. The collective agreement provides some protection in circumstances. And it's a good place to look to know what you can and cannot expect if you do have to call in sick and under what, or not, sorry, not sick, but for a storm and what you can expect and what you can access. But the employer's policies will be held with the employer, not with the union. So you would have to go to your employer directly. The IWK and the NSHA, all of their policies are online for the employees. Smaller workplaces, they might actually have policy manuals, physical policy manuals, as opposed to having a more sophisticated intranet system for people to access. Awesome. And we heard about where Collins is online and it's a policy. Colin, do you have anything in your collective agreement that has to do with storms? We do not. Uh, the university prefers to rely on its policy for now um, because we couldn't get language into the collective agreement because the policy was brand new and we wouldn't, we wouldn't even begin to know what kind of language to put around that other than to refer to the policy. Okay. Great. Well, thank you, Lynette and Colin, for helping our members understand more about their rights and responsibilities when bad weather hits. We hope you've enjoyed this week's Union Matters podcast, and thank you for tuning in. Have a great week.